Welcome to Luncheon and Learn. In today's episode, Jess and I want to take a moment to acknowledge the violence against Black people by the hands of police and discuss the myriad of emotions that this brings up for us. While difficult and uncomfortable, we hope this conversation challenges our temptation to forget and move on while staying true to our work and to encourage our listeners and clients to consider this. Knowledge is a powerful tool for collective conversation. It is hard and it is messy, but we choose to enter this brave space and embrace that discomfort with all of you because that is the only way we move from clear dialogue to meaningful action. So as we do every week, we invite you to grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together. In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. I'm Brianna Clover. And I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. In today's episode, Jess and I are going to talk about some hard stuff. But first, I want to acknowledge that if you're still listening, thank you. Thank you for leaning into the discomfort with us. Absolutely. Thank you. It's so vital, especially for white people, to come to the table and to listen. Listen to communities of color in order for us to authentically engage in these tough, but incredibly important conversations. And by engaging, I want to emphasize listening. Um, As white people, we need to be prepared to hold our voice um, and realize we don't need to interject our voice to actually be engaged in these conversations. Listening is a form of participating and showing up for people. Thank you, Jess. So true. So I want to first talk about Jacob Blake. And I think it's important to acknowledge First, his humanity. Jacob Blake is a father, a son, and an uncle, and a brother who is focused on loved ones even as he lay in a hospital bed, paralyzed from the waist down. Blake's family is rooted in a legacy of activism and devotion. And for those who may not have heard what happened to Jacob Blake about a week ago today, Jacob Blake was on a Kenosha street when he was shot in the back seven times by police officers while standing by the driver's side of his vehicle, while three of his sons, ages three, five, and eight, were in the vehicle and saw everything. His doctors say it's going to take a miracle for him to ever walk again. He suffers from multiple injuries, including a gunshot wound to one arm, damage to his kidney, liver, and spinal cord. I think it's important, as I'm listening to you say that, to address questions that I know I have heard. Questions like, well, what happened right before he was shot? And why was he not following directions and, quote unquote, running away from the police? And I think it's important to always ground ourselves in in perspective from where people sit. Um, And according to the Cato Institute, 68% of white Americans have a favorable view of police. But for black Americans, it's only 40%. So when we ask these questions, especially as a white person, and we have to remember that our personal interactions with police officers might be different. I know for me personally, I would say my interactions range from positive to neutral. 
my personal biggest fear is getting in trouble. I'm a lifelong rule follower. Mm -hmm. So I fear doing something wrong, but I don't feel being harmed. Yeah. So if someone is non-compliant, I may also ask, well, why did they make that choice? Mm -hmm. And I think it's not necessarily bad to question um, if it comes from a place of genuine curiosity to understand the feelings and, and reactions of somebody else's experience that's different from mine. Yeah. But this type of questioning can become problematic when it is used for victim blaming. Yeah. And basically, victim blaming is it's common around the world. It's not just something that we see that happens here. And it is especially common in cultures where it's socially acceptable and advisable to treat certain groups of people as lesser. And we see this in a country like Somalia, where victims of sexual abuse are consistently ostracized and they're harassed. And even women in the U.S. are still consistently told not to wear certain clothing or they'll be asking for unwanted male attention or something possibly even worse that's more physical. When the question becomes a statement like, well, if he had just listened to police, if he would have just stayed still and not resisted, that's an example of victim blaming. The responsibility for the outcomes sit with the victim when somebody uses these types of statements and questions. Yes. Yes to everything you said. And thank you for that perspective. I think it's so important. And I fear that that mentality gets in the way of us truly understanding, for instance, the recent movement around defunding police and what that really means, that the movement isn't anti-police, it is anti-police brutality. That is such a good distinction. And I'm so happy that you said that because you can be for police, mm -hmm. but be against brutality. Right. <laughs> and those are very clear. And when people try to blur those lines or infer that being against brutality is somehow um, standing against all law enforcement officers, that that to me is incorrect. Mm -hmm. You and I have talked about this before, but it's such a complicated issue. And so I think it's important to continue to do research and learn as much as we can around this idea of defunding the police so that we yeah. better understand what it means. I'd first like to talk about America's relationship with law enforcement. In a recent survey of Americans' attitudes towards law enforcement, a poll conducted in the middle of June, it took the temperature nationwide um, over how people were feeling about police brutality. And it was sparked by the killing of George Floyd. And the survey asked questions of 4,708 adults. And Pew's findings show that overall, opinions of the police are definitely less favorable today than in a similar poll conducted in 2016. Two-thirds of those surveys reject the notion of qualified immunity, which basically means that individual officers should be shielded from lawsuits unless they commit clear violations of the law. And the majority of Americans agree that as civilians, we need to have the power to sue police officers in order to hold them accountable for excessive yeah. use of force or misconduct. So we do agree there. But just 34% agree that the police treat racial and ethnic groups equally. And that's down from 47% in 2016. And 31% said they believe the police are doing a good to excellent job of holding police officers accountable when misconduct occurs. At 31%, that's down from 44% mm -hmm. um, just four years ago. Mm -hmm. 
when we talk about defunding, I think sometimes it helps to not just talk about it in a theoretical fashion, but really think about it. You know, how does that happen in a city? So if we take Chicago, for example, as a lens to examine this idea, you know, when you talk to people, they're still defunding. The police is still a pretty demystifying term. Basically, for them, what they're saying is it means taking money from their police department, and that's 40% of their city's budget, Mm. and reinvesting it in other under-resourced areas like public education, for instance. Proponents also question whether sending armed police officers is the most appropriate response to situations that involve social issues like homelessness, sexual assault, domestic disputes, and mental health episodes. Yeah. You know, you had their residents saying, hey, wait a minute, we have our police officers doing stuff like car accident reporting. We don't need a police officer to do that. We have them directing traffic. We don't need people downtown every day directing traffic with a gun. There are so many things that police officers are funded to do that we we don't necessarily need them to do them. Mm-hmm. And some some other examples, things, ways we can shift how we approach these problems. You know, there are chemical dependency counselors that could be trained to respond to public intoxication, social workers that can deal with mental health calls. You could have unarmed city workers that pull people over for a broken taillight with a list of places to go to get it fixed. Right. That way, a routine traffic stop doesn't mean possible death. Yeah. So we're asking our law enforcement officers to do jobs that others are trained to do. And speaking of training, Bree, do you know how much training a new officer receives in the U.S.? No. Teach me. So on average, it's 19 weeks. Hmm. The U.S. has one of the shortest training programs. Um, Hmm. In Germany, it's 130 weeks. Throughout Europe, you see multi-year training programs, education systems. So we're asking our law enforcement to do so many things that they're not trained to do. But when we talk about training, I also do want to be very balanced because when we talk about systemic issues like racism and internalized and unconscious bias, and when we think about social justice, those things are not often impacted by training. And we've seen this historically over and over, you know, in the corporate sector as well, that training methods around these are ineffective. So, um, I don't know that that just throwing more training at the police officers is the answer. And I think that the point of looking at this idea of defunding, it doesn't mean to abolish. It's saying, can this be reformed? Can this be restructured? Which is a very appropriate response when you see brokenness within a system. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And I think what you brought up here too, I mean, this this is in the best interest as well as police officers. Perhaps right. we're asking them to hold way more responsibility than they're trained to. So um, I, I see that that's another perspective to consider in all of this. And I love how you shared a lot of data. I've heard feedback from some of our listeners that that data is helpful to understand. And so I did want to share another resource that I think has some important information to understand why, despite years of promises to address the issue of police brutality, it's not working. And I think you alluded to some of that when you talked about training, especially when you're talking about training in a system 
for a problem that is so systemic. Uh, So the Washington Post in 2015 began to log every fatal shooting by an on-duty police officer in the United States. And in that time, there have been more than 5,000 such shootings recorded by the Post. And I just went in there as of August 26th. And it shows 1,022 people have been shot and killed by police in the past year. So I um, I think we'll just include a link in our podcast notes for those data nerds out there. But I think it's important to note that Black Americans are killed at a much higher rate than white Americans and that Black Americans account for less than 13% of the U.S. population, but are killed by police at more than twice the rate of white Americans. And while Hispanic Americans are shot at a lower rate, they are still shot almost twice the rate of white Americans. So I think all this to say that Police brutality is a problem in America, and something has to be done to stop the lynching of black men by the hands of police officers. I do want to point out one key thing that you said when you were giving those data points. You talked about percentages. I've heard people say, well, more white people are killed than black people. Mm-hmm. And again, when you don't put that into context and talk about the percentage of a population. Right. And you just talk about raw numbers that can be deceiving. So there are more white people who live in the United States. So Mm -hmm. therefore, there may be a higher total number. But when you look at the percentages, that's that's what you're highlighting. And I think that's so important for people to remember when they hear others push back and, and try to use just a raw number. Yes. Thanks for clarifying. Really good point. This is the second time that I've heard you specifically use the word lynching as opposed to murder. And I know you're doing that intentionally. And I would love for you to explain to us why you use that word. Phew. Um, I think it's an important question. And I'm going to try to break this down in three parts. First, the definition of lynching, then get into a little bit of history. You know, I always love to bring historical context, um, and then application to today. So the definition of lynching is an informal punishment enforced by individuals who do not have legal authority to do so. And it's usually associated in the U.S. with violent punishment or execution directed towards blacks without due process for real or alleged crimes. And if we look throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, white people frequently used violence as a means of controlling African-Americans. In the U.S. specifically, lynching was often motivated by feelings of white supremacy, which is the belief that white people are superior to other races. Following the abolition of slavery and the end of the Civil War, white supremacist groups like the KKK frequently used the threat of lynching in order to keep the newly freed slaves from demanding pay or from exercising any of their newly established freedoms. And I'm putting quotations around freedom there. And in some cases, white supremacists simply fabricated reasons for lynching that would justify the torture or murder of black people. And the real reason for the lynching was to maintain control of African-Americans and to protect white privilege through the use of terrorism. Mm -hmm. And I'd like to quote Carol Anderson here. She's an African-American studies professor at Emory University in Atlanta, and she's the author of White Rage. And, And in White Rage, she wrote about a lot about the lynching area. And she says, quotes, the thing about the lynching era was the capriciousness of it. No space was safe. 
folks of color were never at ease. You're looking all the time. You're wondering, is this a place I can go? You could be walking down the street or in a store or could be sitting on your front porch and could get and you could get killed. Um, and I think if if we apply that even to today and we think about a lot of the black and brown bodies that we have lost to violence, they were asking for help. They were uh, getting a traffic ticket, Sandra Bland. They were walking from the corner store, Mike Brown. They were walking home with Skittles that they got at the corner store, Trayvon Martin. They can't lawfully carry a weapon, Philando Castile. So when we look at today, white predominantly men, and this is including police officers, that are driving a surge in white supremacist violence. And they're sending the same message to non-white Americans that their counterparts did in the lynching era. And that is, you will never be safe wherever you go. The same elements that spawned the lynching era are stirring once again in America. More Americans, and that includes Latinos, Blacks, Muslims, Jews, any non-white, are now experiencing the same fear of being murdered at random in public that their relatives faced during the lynching era. And if we look at the three parallels, so just to kind of sum up the definition, history, and application, there's three parallels really between white supremacists of the lynching era and today. One, they're both driven by the same fear. White supremacists were afraid of losing their dominance and being replaced by blacks in positions of power throughout the South. And when you see that today, for instance, this is one example of many, those marching in Charlottesville in 2017 chanted, you will not replace us and Jews will not replace us. Two, both use the same language to dehumanize their victims. So think about whenever we see in the news about another black or brown body shot by police officers, for instance, pay attention to the pictures they choose to portray on the news of them or the language that they use when describing um, black victims of, of police brutality. And I think it's important here to think about why are we questioning that? Because Black Lives Matter, even if they resist arrest, and Black Lives Matter, even if they committed a crime, and Black Lives Matter, even if they disrespect the cop, do we think death is justified uh, for those reasons? And then third, both are encouraged by the same type of political leaders. So when we look at those leading our country over time, and just the silence and how that enables white supremacist violence, their silence, their uh, refusal to confront race-based domestic terrorism, or their refusal to condemn uh, leaders from saying or making racist statements. So those are the three parallels I just wanted to end on when we think about the lynching era of yesterday and the lynching era of today. And finally, I just want to end with an invitation for you Jess and our listeners to take a moment of silence together while we say the names of Black people who have been injured or died in cases of police brutality or murder. And I thought that maybe you and I could just take turns saying their names. And this list by no means is complete, but I just wanted to honor those who have lost their lives. I think that's beautiful. And I would love to start us off with Brianna Taylor. Ahmad Arbery. Tatiana Jefferson. Jordan Edwards. Alton Sterling. Ayanna Jones. Mike Brown. The Charleston Nine. 
Trayvon Martin. Oscar Grant. Sandra Bland. Philando Castile. Rory Jones. John Crawford. Terrence Crutcher. Eric Garner. Freddie Gray. George Floyd. And Elijah McClain. Bree, what an important practice to honor them by saying their names out loud and remembering that their lives mattered. To all of our listeners, thank you for sharing this brave space with us today. After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to invite you to use a similar practice that Jess and I did in this episode, to say their names. And if a name is one you don't recognize, do some Google searches, find out about them, and remember their humanity. As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at lunchandunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lunch and Unlearn and Facebook at Lunch and Unlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time.